This morning, I want to think through together the implications of the fact that since we have become followers of Christ, since we participate in the Eucharist, since we have been baptized, we actually are indwelt by him. Jesus has taken up residence in our physical bodies. It is a strange and kind of unnerving concept, but an important one, and ultimately a very encouraging one. It is the truth that animates the Christian life. When Jesus was talking to his disciples, preparing them for his imminent death, one of the things he told them was that it was better that he be crucified, die and be raised, because when he was no longer confined in time and space by his mortal body, he could be with them in a new way. He would send his Holy Spirit to indwell them. In this passage that I'm about to read, he calls his Holy Spirit the Advocate. This is from John 16. Your hearts are filled with sorrow because I have told you these things. But I tell you the truth. It is for your benefit that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus seems to be saying that his presence with them in the spirit will be even more intimate and powerful than the relationship with him that they were already experiencing at that moment. And at that moment, they were spending every day with Jesus, hearing him preach, watching him heal people, having him explain things over dinner. They were with him, asking him questions and getting the answers in real time. Like, what did that parable mean? And he was answering them. But he told them that that friendship was less intimate and less powerful than what was going to be possible after he died. Because when he gave his life for the world and destroyed the obstacle that human sin had created between God and people, he would be free to send his Holy Spirit to indwell them and all those believers who came after. And this spirit whom Jesus sends, his own spirit, is distinct from our own natural conscience. Most of us have a natural conscience that speaks up and lets us know when we are acting or thinking in a way that is harmful or unkind or greedy or whatever. But Jesus was not talking about that. All of his disciples already had a natural conscience. He was talking about himself, his supernatural being participating in their lives and ours. St. Paul will say, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Now, one might reasonably at this point say, 
But isn't this sort of language that Jesus and Paul are using metaphorical, just sort of poet verbiage? Aren't they just talking about how following Jesus is about accepting certain ideas and values and making them your own, sort of an intellectual thing? Well, I would say maybe it is just metaphorical, but probably not. The reason I say that is that God, who is spirit, seems to be very keen on the material world he created. His son, Jesus, has a body, a mortal one, and then when that body died, God gave him a resurrected body, which he still has, a body that has scars on it and that could cook and eat fish. He was the first fruits, or what we might call the prototype, of what God intends for humanity, for us. Jesus himself spent an inordinate amount of time healing bodies. In other words, God has created us as embodied spirits. Death temporarily separates the body from the spirit, but resurrection unites them once again into what God intended all along. So what does this have to do with our scripture for today? We read from 1 Corinthians about some of the implications that derive from having a body indwelt by Christ. He speaks specifically about what this means for our bodies and sexual intimacy. Before I go further, just to say that whenever a preacher talks about do's and don'ts, there is a hazard that it sounds priggish or holier than thou, or just wrong. Believe me, I am not holier than any of the thous who are listening. My record is very far from perfect. You can ask anybody in my family or my college roommates. But when I was in my 30s, I was deeply grateful for the honest and learned and practical preaching of a man who taught the best he could on what the Bible says about sex. He was so compassionate and realistic that I knew that what he was saying was coming from a desire for happiness and wholeness, not from a place of judgment. I was grateful for myself, and I was grateful that my children, who were then about eight and 10, could hear him. And it's out of that spirit, humbly, and the fact that our lectionary has assigned 1 Corinthians 6 for today, and that as a college chaplain and a pastor and a parent and a wife, I believe that what our contemporary culture teaches about sexual intimacy can unwittingly cause a great deal of pain. What our contemporary culture shouts at us is very similar to what Paul says the Corinthian Christians were claiming. All things are permissible. These people had correctly heard that they were no longer under the law, that they had freedom in Christ. But they failed to examine what that freedom was really for. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians is that sex is linked to our spirit. And if our spirit is united with Christ, the only good context for sex is marriage. He goes further to say that any other sex any other context for sex is actually potentially destructive. Now, some of you may think, well, it certainly doesn't feel destructive, and that may be. 
but it certainly makes us very vulnerable and it is very powerful. It is like fire. In the hearth, it warms the whole house. Lit indiscriminately, it can burn a whole village. Sometimes the Bible gives us instruction that is so countercultural, so out of sync with what we see and know and do, that it's hard to make sense of it. There are many competing contemporary ethical frameworks for physical intimacy, but I will rest one, a good one, just love, a framework for Christian sexual ethics by Margaret Farley, a very practical and open-minded Catholic nun. Her work is a standard reference for college students studying this topic. She considers in great detail what needs to be in place for physical intimacy to be good, to be just. Her criterion, which I will share briefly, are derived from philosophy, from years of counseling, from history, and from her identity as a Christian. She says for physical intimacy to be good, it must do no unjust harm, it must be consensual. It must honor mutuality. It must be in a, in a context of equality. It must involve commitment. Although in her specific uh, prescription that commitment can be incremental. It must result in fruitfulness. And she develops this idea beyond biological offspring to mean a love that doesn't just benefit the two involved, but produces good for others. A kind of outward-looking love. She also says that for sex to be good, it must recognize the full personhood and autonomy of the other. She has many more nuanced qualifications, but basically her work expresses an ethic that is quite rigorous in many ways, worth consideration as Christians. But she rather underplays, at least in my estimation, the biblical teaching that we heard today. Paul says, anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. God has undertaken this enormous risk of tying himself to us and our bodies. And that means our bodies are not just our own. Now, at this point, one can feel kind of squirmy. Kind of like last week when I was on vacation and standing with a cup of coffee on my balcony and there was a drone hovering about 20 feet away. And I had thought I was enjoying a moment of privacy. Kind of like our gospel story about Nathan under that tree. It's quite something to consider that if we have received Jesus, he has indwelt us, maybe more than we can really bear. But the thing is, he has done it willingly and fully knowing who we really are. He does it for only one reason that I can think of, love. He does it knowing all the risks involved, and he has done it for our everlasting salvation and joy. It can be hard to believe, hard to accept, 
that such a risky love is true. To conclude, I will share a story, a true story, that is about this kind of risky commitment, a pledging that is based on love that will not be deterred by risks. It is from a very interesting book called The Choice by Dr. Edith Eva Eager. She's a survivor of Auschwitz. At one point in her life, she decided that her husband was holding her back. He had not been unfaithful, and he was a kind man, but she was weary of his temper, and she convinced herself that he was the source of all her misery. They got divorced. They both dated other people. But when she is alone, she begins to realize that much of what she blamed him for was actually unhealed trauma inside herself. Eventually, she gets a phone call from her ex-husband inviting her to dinner. She tries to put him off, but he convinces her. In the middle of the dinner, he asks her to marry him again. Why would you risk that, she asks. Why would you risk remarrying a woman who rejected you? Why don't you stay with that pretty violinist girlfriend you have? He replies, Edie, she isn't the woman I love. She isn't you. And Edith reflects on the fact that this man, her ex-husband, has always been a risk taker. He chose to fight the Nazis when he could have hidden. She writes, he risked death and disease and bullets to stop what was unconscionable. And it is his willingness to choose her, despite the risks involved, that proves a love that is too compelling, too attractive for her to refuse. They remarry. I tell this story because it is an illustration, from lesser to greater, of the kind of risk-taking love that God has for us for you. He chooses you knowing exactly who you are. That is part of his divine nature. But the thing is, and here's the catch, that while he loves us and knows us and forgives us and accepts us and indwells us, we will not be happy or at peace until we respond to his love and bend our wills and bodies to his loving ways. It is in allowing God to have his way with us that we find peace at the last. <laughs>